My name is Arne Brun Lee. I am Norwegian citizen, born in Oslo, 2nd of February 1925. I was 15 years old when the Nazis came and raped us. When I was 18, I was asked if I would like to join the resistance movement. We were told that um, if we get caught, we would be tortured and probably executed. And in our young uh, enthusiasm, we said, yes, that's fine. We will do that. You're listening to Those Who Were There, Voices from the Holocaust, a podcast that draws on recorded interviews from Yale University's Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies. I'm Eleanor Risa. Arna Brun Lee didn't talk about his experiences in World War II for 40 years, but that didn't protect him from the nightmares. At the urging of his second wife, Ellen Corey Lee, Arna decided to share his story. That's how he finds himself in a TV studio in Peabody, Massachusetts, on November 6, 1987, with interviewers Janet Miller and Anne Walker. Arna is seated against a wooden lattice fence and a big leafy plant. He's dressed in a tweed sport coat, blue and white striped shirt, and a dark tie. He has blue eyes, gray hair, and a narrow face weathered from years of sailing. Arne joined the Norwegian resistance in 1943. He went through what he called very, very basic training. He learned how to place magnetic mines on the hulls of ships and how to use a knife in hand-to-hand combat. But Arna only got to participate in a handful of actions against the Nazis before he was arrested. My friends were brought to um, Gestapo headquarters and uh, tortured and beaten up. A few hours later, I was uh, arrested at home by uh, six men, fully armed. Your home at that time, were you with your parents? Yeah. Were they there when... They were there. Yes. Uh, my younger sister was there, my mother was there, my father was there, and they were held at gunpoint. Describe to us your feelings at that time. Uh, I, I was, of course, uh, very scared. But I, I thought, oh, this is something I'll get away with. I played mm-hmm. innocent. And then they took me down to the Norwegian Nazi police headquarters. And there, everything really changed. There were three or four um, uh, uh, beating me uh, at the same time and yelling and screaming. And then they put me on a stool and two guys were hitting me with ropes over the back and head and everything. And I passed out several times, but I was hollering and I spat at them. And I, you know, I, I, I was so mad, but... Of course, they they kept on and on and on and on, and then they uh, 
they asked me if I knew my three friends. I understood that I was fighting a lost game that they knew all about me. I was then transferred from Norwegian Nazi police to the German Gestapo. And uh, they thought that I really knew more than I did. And they really beat me up and, you know, for these uh, days of questionings, they were very tough. Um, and then, more or less, I understood that the questioning uh, uh, was over. Um, I was uh, suffering, you know, I was uh, black and blue all over and uh, urinated blood and uh, I really looked miserable. There's, in Oslo there is a medieval castle where they kept, they kept prisoners and uh, we were sent down there. Uh, of course we understood that the situation was very very, very dangerous. Uh, then uh, one day in the prison, this was in May 1944, I was taken out and uh, interviewed in an office by uh, a German fellow with black tie and he asked if I had some last messages to send to my parents and things. and. Uh, they were joking about us. We hadn't been able to shave and we really looked miserable. And uh, one of my friends, they looked at him and they laughed. And they said, but you look like Jesus. And well, you'll soon see him, they said. You know, they, they, it was uh, so, so awful. And of course we were scared, but we were also mad. And then the day after, I was taken to Gestapo headquarters. When I came up there, there was a lot of hollering. And when they saw me, and they said in, in German, um, Aber er lebt doch. He's alive. How come? And then they looked in the files everywhere and they couldn't find my file, which is something extraordinary in the German bureaucracy. And then I heard them running around, oh, er hat Glück gehabt, he's been lucky, he's been lucky, he's been lucky. And then they changed tone and uh, almost became friendly. And I was then a problem for them. They called my parents. They said, send him some clothes. And I waited there, and my oldest sister came down with uh, something, a pair of boots, and I don't know. And we were able to talk together for two or three minutes. That was, for me, the turning point. She gave me such courage. She whispered, she hugged me and whispered that uh, we're winning the war. Then I was transferred to a concentration camp just outside Oslo. And there it was uh, a different atmosphere. They were all 
political prisoners and the underground movement worked there as well. They had uh, secret radio receivers. There were news bulletins under the noses of the Gestapo and uh, everybody, because they knew that I had been under tremendous stress. They were so nice to me. And I was the junior. I was the youngest, almost of all of them. And then one day in June, a group of us were gathered together and we were told that we were going to be sent to, to Germany. Describe to us your experiences in Germany when you first arrived. We were uh, shipped um, on a German ship. We saw the lights of uh, neutral Sweden. And then we traveled through Germany and we saw the, the fantastic destruction that had been done by bombardments. I remember we, we went through Mannheim through the, the town for 45 minutes, we didn't see one building which was uh, not in ruins. Anyway, um, we crossed the Rhine and we were taken up to a place called Schirmeck in Alsace. And we were marched up a uh, mountainside and we came to a camp on a slope of the mountain called Natzweiler. We were uh, taken to be de-liced in the shower there. Uh, we were shaved. Everything was taken away for, from us, of course. Then an SS officer came and made a speech to us. And he said the following, that you are now prisoners here and you are very dangerous people and you are in a category of prisoners which is called the German word was Nacht und Nebel which translated means night and fog. He was hollering and screaming and telling us that we had helped the enemy in the night and the fog, and that also in the night and the fog we should die. And he said, uh, none of you are going to get out of here alive. My stay there was relatively short. We didn't work there, but we had very, very little food. and. We spent times being lined up on the, what they call, appel plots. We were counted, recounted, counted, recounted from five o'clock in the morning. We were there, we had to witness um, official beatings. A man, if a man had stolen a piece of bread, he had 25 strokes. We had to witness hangings of prisoners who had tried to escape. I remember one um, execution. The uh, gallow was at the top of the slope and there were several ter terraces down and we were standing down. Um, and we had to take our prison caps off when they hung a fellow. But this time 
um, the uh, knot must have had some grease or something, but because it slipped and the poor fellow reached the ground with his toes. And then one SS with his polished boots dug a little hole in the gravel till he hung. This was not the worst um, in Nutzweiler. Um, one day there was a great deal of commotion at the gate up on the top of the hill. Five girls were being escorted around the, the outside of the camp. And uh, they were English and one, one or two French and two or three English girls. They were radio operators and they had been dropped behind the lines and they were called prisoners in uniform. And they waved to us and made V signals, you know, winning, winning the war and, and all that. And these girls were taken down to the um, barracks at the bottom of the camp where they had the crematorium and the baths, and they were hung there. The war was approaching, we thought it would be over every three three weeks because the uh, invasion was there in Normandy. But uh, it didn't happen like that. It was decided that we should be evacuated from Natzweiler. We were all massed together in rows of five and we started a march heavily guarded uh, by SS and dogs. And we went down the mountain slope like a worm of prisoners, you know, going five abreast and tight together and with, with the dogs and the whips and the arms uh, and the shouting of, of the Germans, you know, the loss, 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 loss. And it was dark and then we saw behind us this, this crematorium and with a pipe stack, which was metal, red hot. And they had uh, hung 400 people that night in there. That's the last I saw of Natzweiler. Then we were, we were marched down to waiting trains. And a group of us, I think we were about 60 Norwegians, we were transported to a camp called Dautmergen, which is near Stuttgart in Germany. And that was the absolute bottom of everything that we experienced. There were no facilities at all. We slept in tents, we slept on the ground. It's now coming September, October. And uh, uh, we were working, they were having surface mining for shale, I think it's called shale, and they were going to make oil out of shale. And uh, we were working there and the conditions were absolutely appalling. After two months, 16 of us were alive. We were beaten, it was Polish, SS, and that's the worst we have seen. They, they were screaming and beating, and they 
shot at us for fun. While we were marching, they would take a cap and throw it in the field and tell the prisoner to go and get it and then, and then shoot him. Most of us had uh, severe cases of dysentery. And uh, this is unpleasant, but we, we had no water, no nothing, no shifts, and uh, our pants became absolutely incredible. I had shit in my pants that was almost two months old. And uh, I reached the lowest of my uh, physical condition. I weighed 90 pounds. I was 19 years old and I looked like 65. Anyway, I saw that I had to do something because I could count the days. I was so weak. And then there was a sick transport. It was announced sick transport. And I said to myself, this is my chance. And I managed to get on the list. Me and a Norwegian sailor, Juliusen. And then one day, a few buses came and we were loaded in the buses with heavily guarded, you know. And then the buses took a very different direction from the railway station. And uh, Juliusen and I said, okay, they've, they've got us. Because what they often did then was they took the sick people and just killed them. I must say that uh, I said, uh, pity, it's going to end like this. And then the buses turned towards the railway station. And we said, okay, maybe we've made it now. But that wasn't the end of, of it. Um, we were loaded in cattle wagons. And we were 80 people in one cattle wagon. Juliusen was stronger than me, and we were successful in getting a corner. And we defended our place there because nobody could sit. We were all cramped. But we were so weak and people started to die. And they were stacked in the corner and we got a little more room. We were 20 alive when we arrived in Dachau. And the transport must have taken a long time because the bodies were starting to decompose. And when I arrived in Dachau, the news spread that a terrible transport had arrived. And um, I was found amongst these other bodies. I couldn't walk, I couldn't do anything. Our half of the camp had lice and we got typhus. I got typhus. In one and a half months, about 16,000 people died around us. And uh, nobody would come there, nobody would do anything. They just put some food in. I remember I was half unconscious and I was going to the, the bathroom or Vasharaum, whatever they call it. And it was very, very cold. And they had uh, taken out 
dead bodies and stacked them in the bathroom. And uh, for air raids and things, there was a blue lamp casting a grotesque picture of the bathroom, the running water, the dead bodies piled up there. And there was a man who who was mad, and he was just screaming and screaming and screaming and screaming. And I, I have this picture of the scene in the bathroom. I don't know, I was helped back to bed somehow. And suddenly, one day, a number of buses with Red Cross on and Swedish flags from neutral Sweden, they came in and they they had two nurses and I thought, this is not, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And I was still very weak after the typhus. And then we were told that we were going to be sent to another concentration camp in northern Germany and that we were from now on under the protection of the Swedish Red Cross. That was end of March, 1945. I'm sure you've thought about it with everything you've been through, um, near death so many times. Why do you think you survived? I think there are several factors. And of course, number one is luck. But uh, I think another factor really contributes, in my case, it's uh, some sort of an, maybe stupid, but eternal optimism. They're not going to get me. And I think you're born with that. It's like an electrical, electric motor that you have that when things go really wrong, it, it starts. It starts. I don't know why and how, I don't know. For almost 40 years, I haven't told the story to, to my sisters, yes, and to a few friends, but it was almost like uh, that was that and don't let's talk about it. That was le passé. Why bring such a terrible thing up until when you get to a certain period in your life? And it hit me. I had nightmares on nightmares, and then I thought, I have to tell it. And also, when I have seen and heard that people tried to say that this didn't happen, I, I see it as my duty. To, to tell people that it happened to the Jewish people and it happened to the non-Jewish people also. And what can we do to prevent these things from happening again? There is a horrible misunderstanding. Vicious people can say this didn't happen, but I'm here and it didn't happen. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. I wouldn't say it was a pleasure, but uh, I'm glad I did it. Is it over now? Yeah.
This interview was just the beginning for Arna Brun Lee. In the years that followed, he often shared his story at schools and community groups in his adopted state of Massachusetts. Arna Brunley died on April 11, 2010, at the age of 85. He was survived by five children and eight grandchildren. One of Arna's daughters, Sieve Lee, credits her father's survival in part to his spirit. She says, quote, The Arna that we knew was one of the most giving, thoughtful people who lived life and didn't sweat the small stuff. Steve's sister, Cecilia Lee, adds, quote, We're grateful for how joyful and playful and silly he was. We could go on forever about how much we loved him. To learn more about Arna Brune Lee's life story, please visit thosewerethere.org. That's where you'll find additional background information, photographs, and links to his 1990 memoir, Night and Fog, A Survivor's Story. You'll also find a link to Passage, a 1991 film that documents Arna's cross-Atlantic voyage in a sailboat he built himself and his return visit to the concentration camps where he was imprisoned during the war. To hear more from those who were there, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to thosewerethere.org. Those Who Were There is a production of the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies, which is housed at Yale University Library's Manuscripts and Archives Department. This podcast is produced by Nahani Rouse, Eric Marcus, and the Archives Director, Stephen Naren. Thank you to audio engineer Jeff Town and to Christy Tomachek, Joshua Green, and Inga Detaya for their assistance. Thanks as well to Sam Cassow for historical oversight and to our social media team, Christiana Pena and Nick Porter. Leova Gerbin composed our theme music. Special thanks to the Fortunoff family and other donors to the archive for their financial support. I'm Eleanor Risa. Thank you for listening.